Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for yet another Sunday together. We thank you for the truth of what we have just sung, that you are not only the Son of God, but our way to God and the payment for our sins as God had demanded that sins be paid for. Lord, you are our life. And Lord, you are our truth. We ask that you take this Sunday, though regular and routine they may feel, as we do this each week, but use it, Lord, meet us here. We've heard from so many other people and places. Lord, we want to hear from you today. So as we open our Bibles, speak to us. As we think through these things in our head and our hearts, Lord, change us. May we be an encouragement to one another too. And Lord, may at the time or end of our time together, we are more like you, less like ourselves. And it's been a privilege and pleasure to be in your house. Lord, thank you again for this. And we ask it all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it's good to see each of you and always a privilege to welcome you to the Lord's house and uh, glad to have all of you, no matter where you are, uh, as, as far as your meeting location. But uh, today we again open our Bibles to John chapter 20 and we're going to be in chapter 21 next week. There'll be three messages in chapter 21, and then that'll be it. We will have finished an entire gospel uh, that we've been working on for well over two years together. And uh, there'll be more to say about that in the weeks to come. But today's portion is uh, verses 24 through 31. And let me go ahead and read that. And we'll ask again the Lord for His help. And then we'll... Uh, See what we've got in front of us. Verse 24, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other's disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said, Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it into my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. This is God's word. He who hath ears to hear, let him hear. 
And let's ask the Lord to bless our time of study. Father in heaven, we thank you for this portion of Scripture. We ask that you teach it to us. Open it up. Help us understand. Help us to obey. Lord, may uh, you be praised in doing so. And may we be blessed. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, this is actually, um, for all intents and purposes, the end of the book. Uh, After the purpose statement there, John has concluded all of his remarks pertinent to his purpose. That last couple of verses, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, Son of God, and in believing you might have life through his name. That was his whole point. And up until now, he's laid out argument after argument to convince you to do the same as we've just seen Thomas do. So the last chapter, 21, is basically an epilogue, which is a nice way to describe kind of tying together a few things with a bow as to what happened to the players in the story as the story continues, but not to follow them until uh, they each are gone. But as far as the, the book itself, we're at its conclusion. Um, And just like any good story, good book, good movie, there are those who love the ending, and there's those who don't. Um, Maybe it wasn't what they expected. Uh, Maybe they thought it was anticlimactic. I hope that as we chart our way through this, you will come to agree that this was the perfect way for John to close the book uh, on his argument to convince you to believe that Jesus was who he said he was. And in some regard, uh, Thomas is the toughest cookie yet. And uh, I think that he probably better represents each of us uh, than any we've seen so far. Maybe for his honesty. uh, Maybe for the fact that he's just... uh, He's just been wrong so many times he doesn't know if he can be wrong again and he's holding out until it just makes sense. Well, we'll get to that. But since we are discussing the idea of unbelief or skepticism, I thought maybe we'd think through the idea of that just so we've got it front and center before we look through the passage known uh, as its main character, Doubting Thomas. Uh, For definitions, if you were to look up the word skepticism, it basically means a skeptical attitude. Uh, To doubt as to the truth of something, that makes sense. Philosophically, there is such a thing as the theory that certain knowledge is impossible. Um, We're not going to take it that far, and I don't think that's at all what is meant by what Thomas says, because we're going to see him change from one side of that coin to the other, from unbelief to belief. But there really are many kinds of doubt. In other words, there's more ways to doubt than one. And they come from different places or angles. And we need to try to figure out, well, what, what is uh, Thomas's issue here in this case? Uh, sometimes doubt comes simply f- because of ignorance. There's something that you just don't have enough information on to be able to uh, make a conclusion. Uh, This is probably the most simplistic form, and it's it's likely a good thing. I mean, when you don't understand something, it's kind of hard for you 
to grab it with both hands, especially uh, in the case, uh, I don't know, of high-pressure sales or something. It's all right to say, listen, I just don't know if I understand this thing. I'm, I'm not ready to hand over my money just yet. Um, you could look at it from the idea of the first person who saw an airplane in the sky who didn't understand how it worked. Might not understand that it's basically the same thing with birds. It's called lift. It's, it's physics. But to look at it to begin with without wrapping your head around it, I, I don't know. I don't know if I believe what I'm actually seeing. Mistrust my own eyes. Um, sometimes doubt's a choice. It's probably the other side of the of the coin. I understand completely what's going on, but I don't like it. So I'm going to not believe because of the implications. There are many... You'd be surprised at the intellectual... Um, what's the word for it? Respectability of the idea of looking at certain moral claims and saying, you know what, I suppose it's plausible, but I don't want to live that way. I want to do what I want to do. Whenever I want to do what I want to do. With whomever I want to do what I want to do. So I'm going to just disbelieve that whole structure system called morality. It's a choice. Um, that's a way to look at it. They choose to disbelieve in order to live as they choose. Uh, there's also a doubt that comes from maturity. Maybe this is linked to before. You know, when you're younger, you're a little more gullible than when you get older. And maybe there's certain points in your life where you look back on being younger and things that you just took hold of that you didn't really think through, but looking back on it, it doesn't look as if it was the best thing to do anyway. Maybe that whole line of thinking was wrong. So that could be a good thing. Same time, it could be a bad thing where you get into a spot where you just don't want to believe anything because so many things have fallen apart that you're just going to be that guy. I don't believe and I don't care. That, that might not be the best, but it's, it's a way that you could doubt. Sometimes there's a doubt that comes from a million little decisions in one direction that changes the trajectory of your life over time. You might have known someone at a certain stage in life and then you know them later and they're not even remotely the same person and you wonder how in the world did that happen. Um, well, kind of like flying from uh, California to New York. You just barely change the direction by just a small degree. You wind up in Tampa over time. And that may account for folks where they would never wake up one morning and say, I'm just going to throw my faith away. But they choose perhaps to overwork or they choose to neglect their family or they choose uh, to not necessarily value a working knowledge of the Bible itself such that it's actually useful to their decision making. Or let's just kick it into high gear. They choose... Uh, cheat on their spouse or leave them or they, they, they choose to put their trust into other things or other people's opinions or the money or whatever else and then way downstream they look back on it and say, I don't know if I really believe that stuff to start with or not. Well, from that perspective, it surely doesn't look like it, but there, it's by degrees. Um, there's the idea of cynicism, which is a close cousin to disbelief. And... Uh, 
I suppose you could say there's a certain way we could just abuse everything inside, including our bodies, such to the fact that we get to a point in life where we don't really believe in much of anything for any reason. Um, that would be a, a sad state, but that's true. There can be doubt as the result of a crisis. Maybe, maybe you lost someone in, in death. Uh, maybe you were abandoned. Relationship fell apart. Maybe uh, you're minding your own business and then 2020 happened. I'd call that a crisis. Changed just about everything uh, that we knew. And uh, it, it's, its fingerprints on society will probably be seen for a very long time. Um, there's lots of ways to be skeptical. And I don't know if you were to graph skepticism on a chart what America would look like over time. But I think we're, we're bumping up against the ceiling of all-time highs. Uh, everybody seems to uh, use the airwaves on the television or social media or whatever just to point out the fact that somebody is dead wrong and couldn't be worse and it's offensive on top of that. And it's it just, you wonder, where do we get into all this? Like you step on it and it just won't come off your shoe. But what's Thomas's problem? That's what we got to figure out. What, where does he fit in, in all that? And that's just different ways to think about how you could be a doubter. Um, we could just cut to the chase and I'll tell you from Scripture what we think we could construct as far as his case and why he might be acting the way he is in this passage. Um, and this is what I heard in a number of places studying for this. His happens to be a case of religious devastation. And you know I'm a stickler for words. I like to define words and then make sure we use those words. Because that's another thing in our culture that I think we're uh, guilty of. We, we overuse words because it just seems to be uh, drama is at an all-time premium. You, you really have to boost and leverage the use of your words so you can sound... Uh, more than the other guy, right? Devastation would not be a good use in, say, the sentence, uh, so-and-so was denied from the college they had their heart set on and they're just devastated. Now that's a bad day. Maybe changes up the whole line of plans that you had. But there's a lot left after that letter or phone call. Devastation is what happens after a tsunami or forest fire or flood or hurricane and there's nothing left. That's devastation. You say, if, if your, your adolescent says, I'm just devastated, you might want to help them take inventory of what they've still gotten as opposed to what they don't have. And then say, you might want to change that term. There's terms for the way you feel, but maybe not devastation. Here, I think it's a good word. This guy's been following Jesus for three years. Now, that's not a lot of time. At four years, you can get attached to roommates and your friends for the rest of your life. Most people decide between three years whether or not they're going to spend the rest of their life with their spouse. Some people date longer, some shorter. But in this case, 
He had identified this man as the Messiah. And if he's the Messiah, it not only changes everything on this planet, but everything in eternity. And he had said, and we're going to read at one point, okay, um, we're going to go in the direction of Jerusalem for this man's funeral, Lazarus. And I guess we'll just go and we'll die. Because the heat at that point was such that if Jesus is found, he'll be arrested and the authorities want him dead, and I'm with him, so this is kind of the line in the sand. Do I walk away forever, or do I walk right into what might very well be my death? So what Thomas has done with the others, it's called going all in. And that's when you see your hand as being the hand you've never seen before, or you have in your head the statistical understanding that it's going to be a winning hand, such that if you win, you get it all, and if you lose, you lose it all. That makes sense. And this is what he'd done. And they crucified the man and killed him. And he's in a tomb. It's all over. He lost the hand. And it doesn't just have everything to do with three. Oh, I just lost three years. No, I lost everything. I don't know anything now anymore. I have no idea of eternity. I don't know if this whole Judaism thing is worth a hoot. I, I know nothing. I'm done. That's where we find Thomas, I believe. So let's build that case, make sure it fits. Uh, What we're looking at now is the last appearance that John gives us of his record. Though for keeping track, all in all, there were five appearances on the first day. There's Mary of uh, Magdala, first person to see Jesus Easter morning. Uh, Then the women, then the the two men on the road to Emmaus, Peter and John. That was uh, Easter morning, Easter evening was the first time he met with the ten behind the locked door. That was what we looked at last week. And then over the next 40 days or so, there are five more appearances. One of them is massive, about 500 people at once. But there's different times with different people where Jesus appears after his death. Uh, in his resurrected body. Um, And then there's one on the road to Damascus with Saul of Tarsus after the ascension that is almost unlike the others such that it doesn't count the same way. But John doesn't count all these appearances. He, He just uses certain ones to make his point to convince you to believe. And this one here, he singles out Thomas for special treatment because Thomas's confession provides the climactic finish, going from unbelief to belief. And the whole book is written that you might believe. So this is for all the marbles. Uh, the other gospel writers only mention Thomas's name. John gives us three different places. All we know about Thomas, we learn from John's account. And what we see in this is a movement The Thomas at the end isn't the Thomas at the beginning. The Thomas at the beginning doesn't believe. The Thomas in the middle believes. Thomas at the end is serving for us as a witness to one who went from unbelief to belief at a historical moment in time with the Jesus and other disciples. And really, that's what John is using this for. It's not like John just decided, hey, this stuff was so good going to write it all down so nobody misses it. And one of the best parts was when Thomas, who was in a bad way, saw Jesus, and uh, he says, my 
Lord and my God. And then Jesus says, my child and my disciple. And then they hug and they all cry. And wasn't it a great story? Well, it was a great story. But what John is saying is the reason you can believe without seeing any of that is because a guy did believe who saw it all. So if you're going to go all in, you need a good hand. This is the best way John knows how to show you that hand. And don't say, preacher's saying this, this is all a big bet and we better make sure. No, it's not a bet. It's a sure thing. Not all illustrations work as well as others. But let's hear John out. Verse 24, now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin. Some of you might have Didymus in your your translation. That means twin. The ESV here just translates it for us. Um, He wasn't with them a week earlier. So the disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. He said to them, unless I see his hands, his feet, well, not his feet, but his side, I will never believe. So first, the scene is set before we get to a week later, same place, same thing. Uh, Thomas is described as one of the twelve. He's described as the twin. He wasn't with the others. No reason is given for his not being there. Uh, There's neither praise nor blame uh, attached to it, as John tells us. Uh, The others tell Thomas what he missed. And then we read what will color his reputation for centuries to come. How many of you like the part of human nature where we like to remember people by their mistakes? I don't. And, and, and it's easy to get something attached to you, too. Um, sometimes we're actually uh, defined by those terms. You see so-and-so coming and you go, Oh, no, I don't have 20 minutes to hear about such-and-such such again. But that's who they are. And that's so important to them. It hurts so bad or it's been such a tough road to hoe or whatever or it's their gripe or their conspiracy or or whatever else but it seems to here this guy gets stuck for two millennia of church history as being doubting Thomas the one who gave us the most wonderful complete confession in all of scripture as to belief but we call him doubting Thomas Maybe that's just because we tend to look at that glass half full. I'm not sure, but hopefully we can uh, scrub this, uh, this characterization of this man, which isn't at all identif- an identification of his best confession. Um, Thomas looks here like what we've seen in previous chapters. Let me read those to you. This was chapter 11, verse 16, if you want to jot that down and look at it later. But um, the idea was this man Lazarus has died. They're kind of hiding out. They don't want to go to Jerusalem. This is very close. Things are dangerous. And it's Thomas who says, let us go, that we may die with him. And then in chapter 14, verse 5, and this is after Jesus had told them, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away, I will prepare the place. If I wasn't going, what I told you, I'm going so that you can be with me. And Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you're going, and how can we know the way? So 
Basically, the idea is, even pessimistically, this man seems to be attached to Jesus such that uh, he's willing to pay the ultimate price. But he's not on the same page as far as the purpose for his going back to his father. Either he doesn't get it, or he's pushing back. I don't like that. No, you, you need to stay. So his protest here, unless I see and touch the wounds, is really from all the sources I can read and just from what seems most logical uh, to myself, I have to, to want to admit that that was not the basis for a serious claim. Okay, here's how it is. If this happens, then I would... I think what he's doing is pushing back on what he seems to be an absurdity as far as what he's hearing. Just to say, and maybe the preoccupation with the wounds confirms it. Look, I saw him die. Now, I saw Lazarus get up too. But if you want to convince me that Jesus is alive like Lazarus, then let's see the, the print of those nails. And let me put my finger in his side, and then we'll have a case. It's not necessarily the ultimate ultimatum, as if to just say, you guys hear yourselves? I mean, I can't go there. So, not long ago, he had said that, about Jesus will go to die, and that didn't happen. Uh, But then Jesus did die, the disciples did run, including him, deserting their Lord, And this is why I think that that Thomas has probably just been as wrong as he can be that he just can't put himself out there anymore. I mean, at what point do you abandon a project that you've just worked on until it just doesn't work? I mean, it wasn't long ago I had a whole group of people telling me, hey, you probably ought not do that. I mean, you could break something. So I wrote it the next day with my cast on because it's fun. I wasn't done with it yet. But to a certain point, I mean, if, if I broke my neck and then I broke my femur and then you know, I'd probably say, you know, I, I should probably hang this up. Um, and there are relationships sometimes we have where, where it just feels like at a certain point, I don't know if I can do this anymore. We're broken people. We're sinners. We're not perfect. We understand that. But at this point, it really does look like his head and his mind, having seen his master's death, are about as raw as they could be. But then comes verse 26, eight days later. His disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Uh, Eight days later is the ESV. It might say a week later. That's what that means. Eight days, they actually count the same day on either end of the week twice. Um, But apparently the reappearance of Jesus took place under the same conditions as they previously did. It's a carbon copy of a week earlier. Why is that important? Well, Thomas could never say that they'd fabricated their report when it happened again exactly the same way. All right? So there's that. Verse 27, Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here 
And see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Uh, real literally, woodenly, uh, from the, the Greek. Uh, stop disbelieving and start believing. Basically the way that would go. As clear as it could possibly be. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. We'll get back to that in a second. But have you ever found out later um, that a conversation that you had that you thought was in private was actually overheard by the person that you were talking about? I asked my wife this last night, and we both agreed that both our stories we should keep to ourselves, <laughs> as far as an illustration. <laughs> but it happens sometimes, doesn't it? You thought you, were, you had some privacy. Everybody in the room right here, especially Thomas, knows that Jesus heard every word that was said because he invites him to run the test, almost verbatim, that he had said it would take in order for him to believe. Now, the way John describes it, I don't think at all that he, he actually went through with the test. I don't think he needed to. And John doesn't tell us that he did. Uh, but what he says here in response, that's all we have, are his words, my Lord and my God. No one had previously referred or addressed Jesus this way. This is as clear as it has been since. And for a Jew to call another human my Lord is one thing, but my God would be unthinkable. Carries a capital sentence. It's blasphemous. And there's no mistaking that either Thomas is addressing Jesus or that Jesus praises him for doing so. Some of the commentators actually, the uh, handful on the liberal side of interpretation would say that this could be um, something on the level of swearing at a moment of surprise. <laughs> it doesn't fit John's record at all um, but add to the fact that anytime men or angels were worshipped accidentally thinking that they were talking to God it's a very quick rebuke uh, with the angels in the book of Judges you know get up I'm an angel or the disciples in Acts we're humans like you are don't do that Jesus has no rebuke, but praise. So here, and this is just to speed things up for the sake of time, here the man known for his doubting has given us the most profound confession in Scripture. Doubting Thomas is believing Thomas. But there's more. That's not the end of the story. It's not the point. John has it here. The point is, what do we do with a believing Thomas? Because that's, that's his star witness, it seems, in his case. He's the last witness before he delivers his final remarks in the next few verses. Um, look at verse 29. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, some would think that that amounts to a rebuke of Thomas's disbelief. But at this point, he's not 
doubting Thomas anymore. This is after he has changed by what he has seen. Evidence that demanded a, a verdict. Intellectual suicide would be to continue to disbelieve in the face of that evidence. So it's better to understand the first part of Jesus' response as a statement that prepares the way for what really is a beatitude afterward. Because if, if you look at this, what he's saying, have you believed because you have not seen, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe, uh, you, you really don't have a comparison here where Thomas is worse off than the others who believe, but they didn't see. If, if, it's, if it's really a rebuke, you, you need to make Thomas less blessed than the guy who believes because he doesn't. Uh, and we could go through illustrations about that. I mean, which is the better sports fan? The one who lives five miles from the home team or the one who lives, you know, on the other side of the planet, but he still roots just as hard? Um, I don't know. Some of those kind of fall apart and they don't really help us understand this any better. But what Jesus is doing here, it makes sense as we move on, is that he's speaking of a transition that will come into effect from this point on, after his ascension, where people will have to believe without seeing what Thomas saw, but on the basis of what the apostles had witnessed. So, if you think about it, Thomas's doubt which is really not applauded in Scripture. Doubt is always considered a, a bad thing. Gotta, we want you to believe. Not, and and it, sometimes we can kind of get in trouble looking on doubt as uh, some type of virtue where, where you know, my faith is more uh, substantive because uh, I, I doubt and Jesus loves me anyway. Oh, that stuff only goes so far. Nobody would say, you know what, me and my wife have reached a whole new level in our relationship because we've just embraced the fact that we don't trust either as far as we could throw one another. <laughs> That'd be ridiculous. You want the trust. and you, you, you want the belief. So Thomas was disbelieving, but he got the best evidence a skeptic mind could ever want. But that was Thomas. And if that's all that's part of this story, then you want to just say, well, it must be great to be Thomas. He's like any of these other heroes or millionaires or superheroes that get all the good stuff. I didn't get to put my finger in the side of Jesus, and I never will. So what am I supposed to get? You get this beatitude. Blessed are you who will believe having not seen what Thomas saw but trusting his testimony that he saw it and sharing in his belief. That's what we get. You're just as blessed. It works the same way. And basically, that's the way we function with a lot of the things we believe in. How many of you were actually met George Washington? How many of you would say, I don't believe he was the first president? Because, you know, I, 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 I've never met him. No, we, we're trusting on the vast witness of others who knew that. That's what we're doing here. This isn't just something that we're supposed to, you know, like, like the end of some Disney movie. You know, believe hard enough and 
clap your hands and everything will be all right. This is the same as you would believe on any other material witness to arrive at a verdict. So Thomas's declaration is the last assertion of personal faith recorded in this gospel because John sees it as enough. It represents the climax of the book because it presents Jesus as the risen Lord, victorious over sin, sorrow, death, and doubt. If Thomas can believe, we can believe, if only we're believing what Thomas saw. So John's readers, like Thomas, need to come to faith, and this is what coming to faith looks like. What was one of the first things Jesus said? He's beginning his earthly ministry. John the Baptist has introduced him. You've got some disciples that are looking at things and saying, Okay, uh, I want to know more. We talked about, looks like Jesus has his first like. Maybe even a full-blown follower. And what does he say? What are you all looking for? What are you after? And you're thinking... Hey, churches can't act that way. They'll go to another church instead. You've got to make it good for them. You've got to give them, I don't know, a punch card, reward system, a goodie bag. Jesus, you can't just ask questions like that. I'll give you a bad review. But that's what he did. And then in response to the short conversation, he said, come and see. This is going to take a while. You're going to need to see a lot. Things you've never seen before. But come and see. Now we're left with this man coming to faith through a whole crisis of belief. At a point to where he thought the thing that was best and most believable was absolute worthless to him. Only to realize it was true all along. And there's no other way to look at this story as Jesus coming a week later, but only for Thomas. I don't know if you ever looked at it that way. And don't make the mistake of thinking that the man who came to the cross to die for your sins will leave anything on the table in convincing you that he is who he said he was. If your mind's open and your ears are open and your eyes are open, you'll see. You will see. He says, come and see. This is how it happens. And this is why what we just read has everything to do with the next two verses. Having said all that, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. As if to say, I know there's a lot more, but I only handpicked what I wrote for this purpose. These are written so that you too may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in His name. Thomas saw and believed. Do you believe? So the, 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 the flow of the thought from these verses is this. Thomas saw and he believed, even though he disbelieved prior to this. And those who have not seen the risen Lord in the flesh, yet are blessed if they believe not seeing. Therefore, this book is written... So that you might read these stories, the accounts of these men who were there with Jesus, who was the Son of God, and you might believe as they did. They're believing 
would convince you to believe that he was who he said he was. What he chose to write, John told us, was written that you might believe. And it's kind of a dual function. We call John the evangelist. Basically, the whole book is, is an invitation. Do you believe this? But at the same time, not only will this win the lost, convert the unbeliever, but doesn't it comfort the found? Just the exercise of going through this. To look at other men who are re- struggling with the same thing. To a guy who could have spent three years with Jesus, watch him die, and most assuredly, in, in the depths of despair, mentally, as well as emotionally, say, I, I don't have any more to believe. And then here's this man through a door who's been listening the whole time. And all he has to do is say, all right, it's time to pony up. And what does he say? You're not only my teacher, you're my God. And that's that. The most clearest, profound confession in the pages of Scripture. But it's not just a history book. It's the longest gospel tract anyone's ever written. You close the book on it and you're left with the question. So what do you say? Do you believe? If Jesus, has he been saying to you, okay, it's time to stop your unbelieving, it's time for you to believe. All the things we've been through. And I don't know about you, but I've, I've, I've almost... I almost try to turn a deaf ear to some of these folks. Uh, and I, I don't know how you'd say it, but not necessarily celebrities, but authors or artists or people that you've known who claim to be Christians talking about how they don't believe anymore and they've never been happier. And part of you wants to, okay, explain that to me. Part of you want to say, I don't want to hear any of it. And I guess certain thinking uh, for someone like me, okay, you, you don't just throw that out like, you know what? I finally bought a Ford, and I'm glad I, I'll never need a Chevy for the rest of my life. Or I finally switched cell phone carriers, or I switched toothpaste. Or, or, or any of these things that you, you, you've done it and you really think, man, this is better. This isn't that. This is all in. It not only tells you what to expect when you die, but how the whole world came into existence. That there's either purpose in every single molecule... Or you're left with the idea of, I have no idea. There's theories, but basically the best we come up with is this one grand accident. It's everything. There's no such thing as neutral on Jesus. Either he accounts for it all, or he means nothing at all. And you've got to find a better way to explain meaning in life. And to listen to somebody say, well, we've got meaning now. Because I really do care where I'm going to eat lunch. And I really do care if I spend my life with someone. Or 
But before I was born, it didn't matter. And after I'm dead, it doesn't matter. I don't think that makes logical sense. It can't. It's accidental meaning. Get you a mason jar and put a few things in it and shake it up for a while and expect there to be some meaning inside that jar. Well, it might mean that what you put in the jar is this or that or the other, but do it with an empty jar and shake it up and try to find meaning. It doesn't work. I don't know how the Lord will use your life and your understanding to bring you to the point. But at some point in your life, and everyone who walks in and out of a church where the gospel is clearly explained, you have to decide. There's no way around it. And what's worse is to not decide is to decide. Because the Bible tells us to not believe is to be condemned already. But to believe is not to be condemned. And we could go through this over and over and over again. I think it's probably best to leave it the way John left it. I went to this trouble late in my life to write these things so that you might believe. And if you do, you'll have life everlasting. We're going to sing a song in just a moment. We've sang it a couple of times through this series. My faith has found a resting place. It's a good question to ask ourselves. Has your faith found a resting place? A hook to hang it on. Blind faith is a ridiculous thought. This is a massive hook to hang it on. <laughs> Let's pray and then we'll sing. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the testimony of John and the testimony of Thomas. Lord, I don't know that I would want to have to go through what Thomas went through in order to believe. Lord, it's kind of like other people making mistakes. It's possible we learn from others' mistakes. I think that's exactly what John meant in your inspired word. Lord, you've given us enough to believe what others have seen. Lord, may we be blessed as a result. There's somebody here today thinking, wandering, doubting. Lord, may today be the day where they stop doubting and start believing. And if that takes place, Lord, may we all know that that's something you give us. Because you're good. To take us by the hand and lead us out of the darkness into the light. Lord, thank you so much for our time together this morning. We ask that you speak to us not only through your word and through each other's encouragement, but bless us through the words of this hymn. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen.